Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Nicholas Berkeley Go. Nicholas, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Nicholas Berkeley Go, and I'm a strategic marketing manager at Crypto EQ. Before we continue, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Adverity. Marketing is a thankless task. You go through all the trouble of setting up your campaigns, perfecting your messaging, and targeting your customers. But when it comes to revenue, who gets all the credit? That's right, sales. Well, it doesn't need to be this way. Adverity is the marketing data analytics platform that lets you easily monitor performance and link it to actual revenue in your company. What's more, the advanced analytics module will also give you predictive insights into how best to adjust your campaign spend based on the best ROI. Go to info.adverity.com slash MXA for a free demo. Again, that's info.adverity.com slash MXA for a free demo. And now back to the podcast. What is your background? Where'd you go to school? How did you end up in your current role? I'll start off saying I have a very non-traditional background. Uh, I actually came into marketing through a side door, I like to say. Um, I, I originally went to college for opera performance. Uh, so I'm a classically trained baritone and pianist. Uh, I, uh, after starting school in that, though, I realized that I didn't really have the thick skin to perform professionally. So I dropped out of college and I started managing retail stores for about eight years. Uh, and retail kind of solidified my love for people, and it kind of refined my ability to uh, discern customer behavior. And it also gave me a real broad business perspective because you have to do so much as a retail manager. Uh, and they're really kind of activated by their entrepreneurial spirits. Uh, but I wanted to have a greater impact on customers, so I moved into marketing in the retail sector. So after that, uh, a connection of mine decided to start a contracting company and recruited me to manage this company. Uh, this is called Noble Contractor Solutions. Uh, so I helped him kind of found his business and establish the marketing function there. Uh, and it was a complete, complete pivot for me because I had no experience in construction whatsoever. So the, the opportunity to do something completely new was really exciting for me. Uh, and in about three years, we took his company from LLC filing to about $1.5 million of revenue. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was, it was quite a growth. Uh, it was really fun. We had the um, benefit and bad uh, time of, it was also 2017 in Houston, whenever Hurricane Harvey hit. Uh, so there was a lot of work for contracting companies at that time. Uh, and then after that, uh, I really felt that I had as much impact on the company as I could. And then an opportunity uh, kind of presented itself for me to work for Houston Grand Opera, uh, which really, it's really aligned itself with my own personal background and my professional career, uh, which also presented a completely new sector for me, it, it being like uh, nonprofit and performing arts. Uh, so I jumped at that, went in to work at HGO. Uh, and I managed several different uh, audience-specific initiatives. I did uh, the Young Professionals segment. Uh, I also managed Overture, which is the LGBTQIA segment. Uh, I managed group sales as well. Uh, I was able to grow each of those groups for quite a while and push some significant organizational change. Uh, I fostered a more inclusive audience, which is a, a big passion of mine. Uh, and then, of course, a uh, big thing that we all talk about now, the pandemic hit. Uh, the company was forced to lay off a very significant portion of the staff, which included my position. Uh, but I was very fortunate that I'd lived in Houston for quite a while and I had a very big network. Uh, so another professional connection of mine uh, hooked me up with Crypto EQ, which, again, was another completely new sector for me. It's uh, blockchain and tech which is something I'm interested in. I, I've been uh, investing in blockchain since about 2015. Uh, so it's a complete radical change, but still in marketing and branding, something I'm interested in. So I, I pivoted again and kind of grew my sector experience. And that's what I've been doing ever since. 
Very interesting. That that was a great story, and I definitely want to get into the um, those individual experiences a little bit more. But I, I want to start with asking about starting in an art uh, as your focus and moving to business. How was that transition for you, and why did you decide to make that transition? You know, going into opera performance for me was more of a rebellion. <laughs> when I uh, when I went to college, my grandmother told me the entire time, study business, study business, do sales, do marketing. That fits you. That fits you. And I absolutely had no desire to study business or marketing whatsoever because that's what everyone told me they wanted me to do. And I'm one of those people that whenever they say, don't touch the big giant red button, I want to touch the big giant red button. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when everyone's saying, go study business, go study marketing, that gets you. I, you know, I want to go in the complete opposite direction. I'm going to go study opera performance. That's what I enjoyed doing. That's what I, I was, I'm a very fine singer. I was an excellent singer. I still sing to this day. Uh, I still have a piano. I still play to this day. I still practice all the time. It's a passion of mine. I just, I don't have the skin for it and I'm not called to be a teacher. So it wasn't, it wasn't something I wanted to do with my day job. And uh, there, there's a lot of writings about what they call passion burnout. And uh, I didn't want to get caught in that place where you're spinning your wheels all the time and you get passion burnout because you're not able to really do what it is that you want to do and that you're called to do. You have to do something that you need to do in order to do what it is that you want to do, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That was the impetus behind my change. So I, uh, I, that's what drove me into retail because that's, that's what I could get a job in. And uh, I, I, I have a lot of soft skills. I, I'm, I'm good with people. So I, I got up into management there uh, pretty quickly. And I love people. I really love working with people. And uh, direct one-on-one -on -one experience is one of the non-negotiables in every job I've ever had. I, uh, I want that direct customer experience. I want to be able to talk with them I want to know what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're seeing, and uh, be able to optimize and maximize their experience. A lot of people might not think about the freedom that you can have if you say what you want up front when you're joining a role. And I think, at least in my experience, I've, leadership wants you to tell them what you want because there, there are so many different work functions in an organization um they want people who actually want to do that part so you saying that you know a non-negotiable for you is that you want to be client facing um how how did you feel when you first or first of all how did you discover that and can you speak to asking for what you want to be working on at work and what that process is like sure i uh one thing my dad told me when I was a kid, when I decided to study music, uh, it's funny that this applies to my business career, but I think about it a lot. Uh, I think I was playing the piano for one of his friends one night and they were asking me, you know, how do you think you're going to make money studying music? And uh, I was having a hard time thinking of an answer to this. And he said, you know, if, if you do what it is you love, the money is going to follow. And I couldn't think of a better answer. And I apply that anytime I'm thinking about my should questions. Should I ask this question when I'm in an interview? Is this, should I call this a non-negotiable? It's important to me. It's something that I do want to do that is a, a very high value, uh, you know, a job descriptor. Should I ask this? Should I, should I call it a non-negotiable? And, uh, you know, if I, if I value something that high, right, it's a passion, the money will follow. 
It's going to be there. And if it is that important to me, I need to prioritize it that high. And I, I just, I continually refine my definition of alignment as I get older. And I continually come to the realization that if I don't ask for things, I'm not going to receive it. I have, uh, I, that was just also something I was taught as a kid. I, uh, I would love to be given things, right? We all want to be given things without asking for it. But that's generally not reality. I have the benefit of, you know, I'm generally gregarious and approachable. So people love giving me things, which is great. But, you know, I, I still have to ask for them. And if, if, I'm, if I'm unwilling, unable, or uncourageous enough to ask for them, I'm probably not going to get them. I totally agree. You know, asking for what you want. I'm, do you have any um, negotiation advice, by the way? If somebody's trying to get a job, maybe they're thinking I should be negotiating here. Do you have any advice for them? It's not only negotiation advice. It's also general career advice. I, uh, I have a, I have a Senate. <laughs> I have a, uh, career Senate of about seven people that I trust their opinions. I have incredible trust for their opinion. And anytime I need to make an important career decision, I will take it to my Senate and I will get their advice and their opinion on each of these decisions separately and together two different times. Uh, and, and a negotiation, I think, is the same. So it, it usually comes around offers for a negotiation. I'll take that offer to them and ask their opinion on the offer and say, you know, this offer has A, B, and C, and then what my opinions are on each of those, you know, but the offer does not include D, which is important to me, you know, and like when you're thinking about an offer, right, that's, that's a really important time in the next, like, year, two years of your life is segment D important enough that you need to counter on that. How much do you want to counter on that? Is that enough that you want to push back strongly? How much do you want to push back? Uh, yeah, I, I think having that outside perspective uh, is extremely important for that because I can only see what my two eyes can see and there's a lot more world out there beyond my two eyes. I can't believe that because I have a board. I call it a board, but I actually like Senate more. And for the listeners, this is very crazy. Um, we, so basically, we both have the same structure built. I found, and I'll, so I'll, I'll give a little background of where this is coming from. So um, I had a bunch of mentors in college. Some of them became really close friends. And now that I'm kind of into my career, I, I've assembled a sort of board structure uh, with this literally the smartest people I know. And the I, have ex I do the exact same thing, although I, I will now adopt a new feature, uh, which is to do the one-on-ones. I think that's a great idea because previously it was only the group time, but it makes perfect sense to do one-on-one. -on -one. And um, I mean, that's just such an amazing idea. And the, the concept of it is is amazing because... It gives me so much more confidence if I can get all these different people who are all smarter than me <laughs> to agree on something. And one of the things that I like about it is I have a very diverse group in terms of their specialties. So each one is kind of responsible for a different piece of uh, or a different like component of life. You know, there's there's the spiritual side, the energy side, there's the branding side there's you know the financial side um health right there's going to be so many different spheres that you operate in so i like to get 
all of the different perspectives are presented. Tell me more about your Senate. I'm I'm loving it, um, but I, this is this is so exciting. I'm like nerding out. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, this is something that's very important to me because I I I highly value thought diversity, and I think uh, I'm I'm going to put a high importance on this. And uh, you know, I don't know the makeup of your audience, uh, so it may the actual diversity of thought that's in my Senate may shock some of them. Uh, I have a very wide range of friends uh, from, so a couple of the people in my Senate, I have like high level uh, elected officials of like, uh, you know, federal level government. I also have people who have very sketchy records cannot hold a lot of jobs because of their uh, criminal background. Like they run the gamut. I have not been to college, you know, all sorts of type. And I value each of their opinions absolutely equally because their perspective, uh, the contrast between them is incredible. And neither perspective of theirs do I have. And neither perspective of theirs is something that I could approach. And each time I ask them one-on-one or together, uh, usually their opinions stay the same, but sometimes it's that, uh, you know, the persuasion of the group, right? It's that group think thing. Sometimes they're different when they're together. That's why I do the, like, two different techniques. And I like to make sure that the decisions I'm making are equitable with my values and equitable with, you know, kind of the future that I'm trying to build, not only for myself, but, you know, the values that I'm trying to instill, you know, with uh, a future that I see for, you know, the world. And I envision a world where all of these people, you know, have a future together. That's very interesting. Um, How long have you been doing this for? And how has the concept of your Senate changed over time? So the concept of my Senate has absolutely changed over time. Uh, As I've scaled in my career, it has gotten a lot more professional because my uh, professional network uh, has gotten a lot more expansive. Uh, So the credibility has definitely deepened and heightened uh, in my Senate. Uh, The strategy of the two-pronged technique, whenever I have an idea, uh, is newer. I've only done that for probably about two years now. The full Senate idea is uh, something I've done for probably about eight years. Uh, That was some... When did I first hear about this? There was a friend of mine that uh, I don't remember what the issue was. I think he had gotten proposed to and he took it to his friends and was asking their thoughts about it. And it was just something that seemed so novel and foreign to me. And I was like, you asked your friends before answering the question? What? And uh, yeah, so I started a like, personal friends circle because uh, it's yeah and then I had a secondary uh, senate that I started once my career started uh, taking off about eight years ago so um, back to the kind of career related questions so what do you love about marketing and analytics Yeah, so my sole focus is to create an impact for customers. I want to make a lasting impression or an unforgettable experience because I know that when you create value for a customer, you build a long-term relationship that translates into long-term revenue. I don't really focus on the revenue aspects because I have a faith that this relational value will deliver impact for a company. And I love the symbiotic relationship that marketing and analytics has 
to continuously improve products and services. So it's this feedback loop, right? And I, I don't mean to be reductive on marketing, but if you think about the definition of marketing, so we're essentially bridging the gap between products and services and customers. So essentially, by understanding consumer or customer behavior and the trends, we translate those into insights and we create effective campaigns, we drive sales, and we create a personalized customer experience. And then we take analytics, which helps us track the effectiveness of these strategies. And we can then modify our strategies to maximize results. So we take this loop and it continuously turns and improves and helps us build and engage this relationship to help deliver value for a company. So it's, it's about relationship building for me. And with my resale background, that, that's really what I love about it. Delivering that value, delivering that impact for the customer. So how does that loop, that feedback loop work in reality? What are some ways that marketing can impact a product? Absolutely. Um, the most recent way that I've done at my current company is uh, there's two different surveys uh, that I built that we send out. Uh, there's the net promoter score uh, that Bain created that essentially tracks what your community uh, thinks of you. Uh, and this can be tracked in two different ways. So we have a timed survey that goes out. Uh, we're doing it quarterly. Uh, and everyone in our community will be getting this survey quarterly to track how well we're doing, what you're thinking about us. And then at the end, I add in an empty survey to saying, what do you want to see that we're not currently doing? Or out of what we're currently doing, what can we do better? It's, uh, I like to use the example. We have, uh, at CryptoEQ, we have a lot of open feedback because we have a very open community. We have like Telegram channels. Uh, we're very uh, open to feedback with our community. We're very open, like you can reach us 24 hours a day. Uh, but a lot of companies are not that open to their community. And I, I like to use the example of uh, there's this, there's this uh, short little video a therapist showed me once of a man and his girlfriend sitting on a couch. And uh, I think it's the girlfriend, it may be the boyfriend, has this giant nail sticking out of her head. And she turns to the boyfriend and says, you know, I have a headache and I don't know why I have a headache. And the boyfriend looks at her and says, I think I know why you have a headache. And she's like, no, 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 I don't know why. And he's like, I, I can help you with this headache. And, she, you know, she wants no information. She wants nothing to do with it. She's like, I don't know. I can't figure it out. Don't tell me anything about it. And the boyfriend's like, I can fix this for you. Let me fix this for you. And there's just, there's, you know, no communication between them. And he's like, I have the solution. Let me give you this solution. And she's like, no, 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 thanks. And it, it, you know, this is that kind of feedback loop that I think a lot of companies are stuck in about how can we get better? How can we do better? You know, in the meeting room where marketing is talking to each other, you have a team of 20 and all of marketing is talking to each other, strategizing, trying to get better. It's great. You've got such good conversations. You're going, how many customers are in that room? There's none. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's so important to get the customer's voice in that room. And that's why I, I push for closing that feedback loop so much. Uh, I don't want you to print out the paper to do it on, you know, bring it in digitally, but bring in those surveys, bring in those responses, read those off in the meetings. What are they saying? Actually, what are their words? What are they saying that you can do better? Do it. What are the action steps? When can you have it done? What are the plans to get this done? Because if your KPIs are, you know, ROI, if you're looking at putting money into doing things that are going to create an impact for the company, 
doing the things that your customers want absolutely are going to create an impact. You're going to get a return on doing the things your customers want to see. And they will tell you what they want if you listen to them and give them the channel and the opportunity to say it. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have any advice for how to get good insights from customers? Any good questions to include on surveys? Any, anything that a co- somebody could take away with them? I think it depends on your customer base and the type of products that you offer, of course, as everything in marketing does. But honestly, I think this is also one of those bottlenecks that we get caught in. I'll also speak in the first person here that I get caught in. I'll call it a strategy bottleneck. I'm sure there's probably an official name for it, and I don't know it. This is one of those places where we get in a planning or strategy bottleneck of how can I create the perfect question to get the most amount of feedback to do it I think this is one of those places where you just need to stick your feet on the ground and start running. Start asking questions. Eventually, you'll find better questions to ask. But I think the best question to ask is just the first question you ask. You know, what what can we do better? What do you want to see that we're not doing? Or what are we doing great? What do you like? What do you like about it? What are we doing that you don't like? What can we do better? What are other people doing that you like that we're not doing? And it's just, it's, it's getting the conversation started. One of, one of the greatest insights I learned working in retail, and a lot of people don't like hearing it because it's very true, People love talking about themselves. If you let them talk about themselves, they will talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. So ask them about themselves. Ask them about their thoughts. Ask them about what they want. They will tell you and they will talk about it. So one way to get customer insights is social listening. But with all the algorithms, bots, and everything, how reputable is social listening compared to like surveys? I mean, there's always a disparity between your types of data. I would absolutely prioritize the primary data you get from your customers versus your social listening data. So your secondary source data. If you're interested in the social listening data, I would absolutely go to an agency for it. Uh, Depending on the budget you have for it, if you have the budget and the time to invest, uh, looking at the reputation of the company uh, that you're going with, uh, that's okay. Uh, I usually don't. Most of the places I've worked with are startups and we need our information three days ago. Uh, so I would invest in an agency, uh, cause they usually have already done the work on the reputation and the quality of output. Uh, if they've not already done the social listening and you can just enter domain information and what you're looking for and they can shoot you the results within an hour, uh, which is perfect. Um, that's what I would recommend if someone's looking for a recommendation for quality as well because the size of the companies generally depending on what you're looking for. That makes sense. Um, and on the thread of, uh, kind of data, what is the current state of data storytelling and how do you think it'll evolve in the future? I think both parts of this question are similar with some distinctions between them. I think one of the biggest One of the biggest things we're dealing with right now is a skills gap. Uh, There's not a lot of people out there that know what to do with data or that know what to do 
with data well. There's a theorem out there, and I don't know the name of it, about the uh, about how much data and computing processing uh, will continue to scale over time. And we're at a point where our education capacity hasn't quite met our ability to compute yet, and it hasn't been able to catch up, much less create a structure or a framework that will meet where we're going in the future. So I think that's why we're at this point of skills gap. There are some programs, you know, that are leading the educational market, you know, MIT, Stanford, where they, they put out these candidates that are absolutely, you know, meeting the market, putting it out there. Uh, but it's very small, uh, and and even those candidates really that are leading the market, there's there's still gaps, and uh, I don't know that whenever they're hired in, I don't know that the companies know the types of gaps that I see that are coming out of it. So they put out what I like to call affectionately super nerds that really know how to handle and process and manipulate data into these like wonderful charts for other super nerds. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't translate for like normal dude. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, I don't think, I don't think that's what they're looking for. Right. So it, it, there's like a mismatch for it, right? Uh, they have the skills, but there, there's a design lack there or a planning lack on the front end. Uh, so yeah, I just, I don't think we have quite the, I mean, I don't want to sound like web designer for it, but we don't have the back end frameworks to meet our front end capability. Yeah, and... I think this is an issue across most educational disciplines, especially as you get into the arts. It's almost intentional that there's no, there's very little business that is taught. And it's similar, like it, it's almost like the, the tendency of higher education is, a, is to educate away from the highest return on investment skills. For some reason, like like what we just described here, like even computation, programming, very valuable skills in the world, at the highest levels, they're still being taught in, in a way where it's not really um, able to be communicated. Like that skill is almost like isolated away from where it can provide business value. So it's almost like up in the clouds. And it's, you know, that the, the real skill is, is back on the ground, uh, being able to, you know, do an analysis that actually drives a business decision that can, and, and can be understood by, uh, just about anybody. So uh, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. When I am writing something, it doesn't matter what I'm writing. Uh, one of the side projects I do as well, uh, I, I draft uh, marketing materials or white papers for uh, a very nascent, fledgling investment capital firm. Uh, so it's very high level, uh, very like, I'll call it super nerd as well. Um, so even when it's at that level, what I try and do is, so back in the day, President Clinton used to be called the explainer in chief. Um, and I remember some newscaster saying that one of his talents was being able to explain economic theory in a way that a citizen in Arkansas, when he was governor, could understand it. So when I'm drafting copy or writing something for social media or if I'm creating some sort of like 
legalese that's in the footnotes on these investment documents. I look at it from that perspective of if I'm dude guy in Arkansas who is investing in crypto for the first time, am I going to understand this sentence I just wrote? This one sentence. And I don't think that's a common enough skill that people look at. So when you're, when you're putting copy out into the market, how do you assess the effectiveness or the success of that copy? So the, I mean, this is a very bland marketing answer. The first step to any effectiveness assessment, I have to define my goal. What am I trying to do? I have to define my narrative for copy. What am I trying to say? I have to look at to whom it is I'm trying to say it. And then I need to define, uh, I need to quantify what my success looks like. And then I need to be able to figure out, depending on what channel it is, like if it's social, how I can pull the numbers uh, to figure out whether or not I was successful. I mean, it's a very, you know, standard, bland answer, but that's generally how I go about it. So about your transition to a management role, what skills did you have to strengthen and how was that experience? Uh, sure. This, uh, well, it was terrible. <laughs> um, a friend of mine years back always used to say, you know, we don't grow in a place that's comfortable. So anytime we're in a place of transition, it's not going to be comfortable, right? It's not going to be a place that, oh, I love this. I enjoy this. This is such a great place. This is so wonderful. Um, the, so the first thing that always comes to mind is uh, my communication style. Um, like I, you know, I'm a gregarious, fun person, but like, I, uh, I also was born and raised in Texas and I don't know how much you know about people from Texas, but we are also, uh, we're also very direct communicators. And, uh, I, I had to, uh, I definitely had to soften my management communication style, uh, Actually, funny enough, my husband, his uh, nickname for me is Spicy. Because <laughs> that very frequently is just, it's what I get. Why are you so spicy? You were just, you were born spicy. That's, that's, <laughs> you're spicy. Um, and I, so the purpose in my direct communication, right? I try to be very clear so that what I communicate is understood and it's not, uh, the, the message is not miscommunicated. But you know, direct communication is not, it's not always uh, responded to well. Uh, and communication also needs to be effective. But that doesn't only mean clarity or minim minimizing confusion. It also means I have to build consensus, which is uh, what I had to strengthen. Building consensus is not natural to me. Uh, I was always, uh, what comes natural to me is like forging my own path and generally people will follow me. Uh, I was not one that had to create a team, motivate, and then we all go together. That, that was new. Uh, so I, I had to learn to meet my team where they're at, to communicate my expectations in a way that they receive them well. Uh, and an example I give for this is uh, I, I was managing an associate one time and uh, I found an Excel spreadsheet on my computer. Uh, it was my workstation at the time that was an incredible asset. Uh, 
I think this thing was three or four years old. It had thousands of emails, phone numbers, names. It had tabs, spreadsheets all over it. And it was the biggest mess of information I had seen probably in my professional career. It was just a mess. Nothing was lined up. There was no sense of organization to it whatsoever. Uh, but I mean, it wasn't like nonsensical. Each, you know, each page had its own little thing to it. There was just 300 rows where all of the phone numbers were in column A and then 150 phone numbers for the next 150 rows were in column C. So I sent the spreadsheets to an associate I was managing and said, over the next week or so, could you just kind of, you know, clean the spreadsheet up so that we can put it into our uh, CMS and, you know, use it as a resource because I want to be able to market to these people because they are groups that we had never marketed to before. Uh, so about a day and a half later, I get a uh, phone call from my manager's manager that this associate uh, had mentioned having almost a like panic attack over this spreadsheet because they were unclear and had never... Uh, used Excel before and had been into my boss's boss's office like three times over this assignment, having panic attacks over it. And I, like, I was just floored. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea to me. This was just a, yeah, when you have a free moment, just go in there, move a couple hundred cells around, clean it up. And to this associate, it was, well, I don't know. I don't want to assume. Um, yeah. So the communication style really had to change. It ended up into me reading three or four different books, uh, redistributing the assignment. Uh, and it was not a comfortable situation. So we, in our previous call, we chatted about Flourish dot studio which is a data visualization platform can you talk about what you like about this platform and we'll link to it in the description for this episode um, and what are some common pitfalls of data visualization in general absolutely um i think uh well let me start with the end of the question first and then i'll work into flourish mm -hmm. um because I think Flourish actually addresses a lot of the pitfalls and adds to some of the things I didn't even think about whenever I found it. Um, I noticed uh, as I'm looking at, you know, charting and data visualization, there's a lack of visual fluency. So the people who are making these visualizations, so either the managers or the data visualizers, don't have the ability to translate data into something that actually has a narrative. So there's two different parts of it, right? There's the creation of it, and then there's what the end user takes out from it. So as, as an example, or as a best practice, as I'm creating a piece of data visualization, I will actually take the thesis of what I'm creating and I'll create one short sentence at the beginning of my design process. And I'll keep that one sentence thesis in bold at the top of every document that I create as a check to make sure that what I'm creating is always true to my narrative. So that anyone I send it to or anyone else that collaborates on the process sees that at the top and they can say, you know, oh, that's, that's, that's right. That's what we're creating. Wait, I have a completely different perspective than he does. And that's not what I took from this. So let me shoot an email back on this and say, hey, actually, this is what I thought about this chart that you made. Or this is what I thought about this little animation. This is not quite what that sentence says. What are your thoughts on this? That way, the product that comes out has a much more global perspective, but also still maintains true to that one sentence thesis. Because the goal of this visualization 
right, is to make sure that the person who receives it gets that one sentence. That's, you know, that's what we want. And I, I don't think a lot of people who are creating it have that idea in mind. They're not, they're not fluent in that, that data visualization. They're, you know, like I was saying, the super nerds, they're excellent with data. They're excellent with translating that data into the visualization, but it, the last step, they're not sure what the visualization translates into in enough people's heads after they create it. Oh yeah, that's great. That's so true because that last step requires a very deep understanding of the business context and the business needs and the decision that's being made and the players that are making that decision. And you can't know it all. And so oftentimes that's the pitfall of being too technical is lacking that business context. Absolutely. My second point, design execution and contextual awareness. <laughs> How well is it constructed and to whom am I conveying this message? Is it, is it saying what I want it to say? And can any man, like, like I had mentioned, can any man in Arkansas understand what it is I'm trying to say? This one sentence thesis, is that what's being presented to anyone who's receiving this visualization? So how does Flourish uh, support the, that pitfall? Sure. I think, so my first takeaway when I found it was how straightforward and easy to use it is. So there's a gap in the data visualization markets as I see it. And it's, uh, there's like this middle market that I feel is missing between like Tableau and Canva of like, I can go into Tableau because I'm like a, uh, I don't know, like I'm super courageous and overconfident on my skills and I have no problem like breaking a computer if I mess something up. <laughs> like, uh, okay, I'll just go buy a new one or uninstall a program, like it's cool. I'm not that worried about it. But I, I don't want something that technical that I need to spend a month you know, looking at videos or meeting someone new or talking with a sales rep about, like, I don't have time for that. Like, I have too much on my plate. I don't have the time for that on-ramp to get into it. And at the same time, like, I need more than the capabilities that Canva has. Like, it's not enough. It's not technical enough. It does not address the needs that I have. On the other end of that spectrum, Excel is an incredible tool. I have used it since I'm not going to age myself on your podcast, but we'll say for a year or two. Um, it's definitely a couple decades. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, since I want to say it was since probably sixth grade is the first time I used Excel. It's been a long time. Uh, it is an incredible resource and it makes the ugliest charts I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I don't want to put that in anything that I create. They're incredibly technical and you have a lot of uh, design capabilities, but there's not a lot of, uh, it's capabilities without uh, like fixtures and finishes into it is what an interior designer would call it. You have the capabilities, but not the uh, stuff you can put into it. So there's this middle area where Flourish just fit right into the market. I, I received an email from a school that had a chart in there from Flourish. So I clicked on it and went to it. And it was just one of the most enjoyable experiences I had ever had from data visualization. And I'm not a data visualization person, which like floored me. I, uh, I like pretty things. I'm a people person. I worked in retail. I did like women's fashion. <laughs> so when I enjoyed a charting experience, I was like, what? Like I, I, uh, you know, I did calculus. I minored in finance. I, I can be a super nerd. I studied classical music and counterpoint. I can do the math thing. I'm good at it. It's just, you know, it's not my calling in life. 
But when I enjoyed a charting experience, I had to look up what company this is. This is incredible. And uh, I started building a chart and it was straightforward. It was easy to use. And one of the first things you'll notice, and Alex, it was one of the first things you noticed when you got onto the website, there's animation. And I think this is a really vital point. Um, so not only because it adds interactivity into the mix, which actually increases engagement time, which for marketers is a really important point because we really want to increase that engagement time. But adding animation really punches up the storytelling piece. So if you're really trying to punch home that narrative, if you're really trying to get that one sentence thesis, really focusing in on the storytelling, getting that animation in there is the on-ramp to that. That's really going to get that home because... Uh, I mean, I, I assume a lot of people listening are probably in America. They probably have subscriptions to Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, or they watch regular television. We like things that move, that are flashy in front of our eyes. And animation is going to get someone to understand data. Watching, when you look at a piece of information and you see, you know, 3.1415957, you don't understand what that is. Right. Whenever a circle unfurls in front of you and then you see actually how circumference works and what pi means, you'll understand what that is. And then you understand what that number I just quoted off in the first however many digits of it is. Then you understand what that number is. Mm -hmm. And I think that is kind of, I mean, if you want to talk about like differentiation, that's part of what they have. But it's, it's adding that like middle market piece, the easy to use, I can get in there, it's got templates, you're hitting the ground running. Uh, and I mean, you can directly import your Excel spreadsheets for the people who still have, you know, Gen X managers that everything they do is still on Excel. Uh, it's, it's just, it's so easy to use. And it's so customizable. And it's... I didn't have to learn anything else for it. I can just go in there and start clicking around. It's, it's got the ease of use of Canva with the accuracy of use of Tableau plus animation. It's incredible. And it works really well on mobile because of the zooming in feature where you can click on something and it zooms in and you can see a breakout of a particular line item. That makes it really good for small screens, which has historically been really tough for analytics. Absolutely. And if you are trying to add, if you're trying to add uh, attribution onto any charts, like at a specific time point or on a line chart, uh, you can add points in there that when you touch it with the interactivity piece, it pops up with a little piece of information and will add, uh, you know, a little segment. You can put text in there. It, I mean, it's just, it's an incredible resource. It's, it's fun. It's engaging. And like I was saying to you, you, you touch your screen. You want to spend time on it. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Thank you, Nicholas. This has been such a great conversation. I want to thank you for coming on. Of course. Thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed it as well. Awesome. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.